Every entrepreneur is here to create a shift. The lucky ones figure out what that shift is early on. David shares why growing your team as an entrepreneur is the wrong approach. And find out what the best question an entrepreneur can ask themselves is. Oh, you don't want to miss this conversation. Stay tuned. Welcome to Reinventing Perspectives, the show that's made for Christian entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about everything from faith to business principles to family life to profitability to strategy to tactics to self-care. If you need it, we'll talk about it. I'm your host, Priscilla Shumba. Without wasting any more time, let's dive into our conversation. Welcome to Reinventing Perspective. Today we have a very exciting guest. We have David Taylor Klaus, and he has three decades of being a serial entrepreneur under his belt. He has a best-selling book, Mindset Mondays with DTK, and he is a mentor coach. So, wow, we're in great hands today. David, please introduce yourself to our audience. So thank you. No, and, and I think you captured the interesting highlights, right? I've been doing this for a long time. I, I've only, only, you like that? I've only been a professional coach for the last 12 years. Before that, I had lifetimes in hospitality and then technology. And I learned so much about how to do it wrong that it mm. informs my coaching and the work I do with entrepreneurs a lot. My favorite way to describe it is that I reintroduce successful entrepreneurs to their families. Mm. And I say it that way because of that reaction. What landed for you when I said that? Us and our audience are early entrepreneurs. And a lot of times we give into that message that you've got to be all in about the business if you wanted to be successful yeah. and go in and make that your life so that it can be something. So that really landed with me there. Yeah. By the way, it's the same unwritten rules that I had too, which was when I put everything into my business and I make it successful, then I'll have time for everything else that's important. Except that somewhere along the way, you realize that you're so overcalibrated towards your business, you've lost connection with everything that's important. And that can get really dark. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2005, that had me ready to jump off a bridge. And that's not what the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is about. The idea of leaving this place better than you found it. Essentially, every entrepreneur, I believe that every entrepreneur is here to create a shift. The lucky ones figure out what that shift is early. Some of the rest of us have to wait and beat our head against the wall and figure it out later. And I think that's because all of us inherently are here to leave this world better than we found it. And who better to make that happen than entrepreneurs? Absolutely. I love that you say we're here to make a shift. Okay, what do you mean by shift so that we're all on the same page? Mine was discovered in a really weird way. In the technology company my partner and I had years ago, we wanted to know before we did this whole digital initiative for the company, we wanted to sit down and meet with the executive suite and understand where this digital stuff fit into the rest of the company. That way we didn't have somebody at the end, as we were opening up the website, somebody coming in and saying, wait, it's not blue, or it doesn't do this, or it doesn't have that. We got rid of the late stakeholder problem that's inherent in consulting. So in that room, I would ask them, why is your company special? I don't want your vision, mission, and values stuff that you have stuck on the wall that nobody can remember. I want to know why you're special. What are you here for? And I noticed that these usually middle-aged men couldn't answer. And if they did, 
I would get more than one answer. And if you've got a company where the leadership has different answers about why they're special, why they're here, what they're on this earth for as a company, that's a problem because you've got leadership going in different directions. Well, then I noticed, you know, when you bring that lack of self-awareness to the company, it's flat culture, flat profit, flat growth. It's meh. Mm. But the problem is they didn't know why they were there. And when you bring that home, it's toxic to the family or your community or your faith-based community or your country. It's just soul-crushing. And that wasn't okay with me. And what I realized is that was the piece that wasn't okay. I wasn't here to create a shift around companies doing better stuff on the internet, right? What moved me to my core was unearthing and unleashing the power of the heart. That's the real work. And that's the shift that I want to create. And I started noticing the people that were truly successful, not monetary, but fulfillment and making an impact. They knew what the shift was they were here to create. And that's become the common thread. We're all here to create some sort of a shift. Why else would we be conscious in the way that other animals aren't? We're made this way for a reason. Let's figure out what it is. Is shift the same as purpose? Am I understanding it correctly? Is shift kind of in line with purpose? It's absolutely in line with it, right? Shift is the outcome of your purpose. It's one of the ways in which you living your purpose shows up. You are shifting the world around you. You're creating something new or different. Now you got us really started here. I'm going to give the audience a little bit of a background because you are a mentor coach for one of the oldest and largest coaching schools. To have you on is just absolutely amazing because we know that we all know what we need to do. Some we know what we need to do, but for some reason, we just don't do it. How do we rewire our mindset? I love the question because buried underneath that is why don't we do it? And mm. our brains fight change. Like the actual neurochemistry and function of our brain bites change. The more we think the same thing or do the same thing, there are nerves that are connected to each other in our brain. And the more we have the same thought, the same belief, the fatter the axon, the long part of your neuron becomes, and the more it gets a layer of fat on it. And the more it's got that fat on it, the faster the electricity streams across that piece of the nerve. That means the more we hold that thought, the more likely we are to keep that thought and to think it again or to do that thing again. So to create a new habit, we have to do it enough for another neural pathway to fire and to fire enough so that it gets better conduction across it and the old one atrophies. And the problem is we have short attention spans. Humans are distractible, even without ADHD. It's, ooh, shiny. There's always something else. And so We don't give enough structure or time to learning to make it stick before our brain goes back to the old way. Mm. It sounds like you have to fight a nature that you've created, kind of like a second nature that you've created. That's why it's so difficult to change. Wow. That's why it can be. It does. Our brains fight it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, I don't want to trigger anybody who doesn't like math, but stay with me for a second. (laughs) You go back to the way we were taught math. During the, you know, there would be a test at the end of every week, except the first week, because the first week you learn the first chapter and the second week you're using the concepts from the first chapter in new ways with new content to learn new stuff. At the end of that second week, you were tested on the first week. So you learned it, unpacked it, applied it, and then got tested on it. And that would continue. So you actually were using what you were learning. So it wasn't just stick it in your brain and hope it stays. And the rewire framework, the six-step framework that we built for the book was exactly that. My book is Mindset Monday's 52 Ways to Rewire Your Thinking and Transform Your Life. The rewire 
At the end of each of these chapters, they're all short, readily digestible, and immediately actionable content. And then six steps to walk you through how to then work with that content, take it out on your world, use it, and then revise it and use it some more. It's a structured approach to integrating and reinforcing new ways of thinking, being, and doing. So you don't just read it and then go on to the next thing. You read it, use it, and then go on to the next thing. That's the key. Uh, David, could you talk us through it? Because now you've intrigued our minds and now we're like, okay, we need to know this. So rewire is an acronym. And and first of all, for the folks listening, you can go to mindsetmondaysWithDTK.com and you can download the rewire framework to play with it on your own. I've got it built for you to download there in such a way that you can use it with any mindset or piece of learning that you're working on. So the steps are, the R is reflect, right? It's giving yourself time and space to sit still and reflect on what you're learning in that chapter or the learning that you're trying to embed, Mm. right? And then each chapter has a prompt that gives you an experiment. That's the E, an experiment to take out on your world and try applying it. And you're going to use that mindset or use that learning in real time in your world, right? And the next step is W, it's write. Now remember, (laughs) it's rewire, not retire, because it's not typing, it's writing, Something's different in the way our brain processes information, the way we encode it or decode it. People can type as fast as they think. Very few people can write that fast. So it means you have to process the information, not just regurgitate it. To write out what's coming up and to stream of consciousness, write everything. And then the investigate stages, you get to be the fascinated anthropologist and go back through what you've written and what you've captured and start unpacking what you've learned and what surfaced for you. And there are prompts to help do that. Revise is you rework your experiment, you take it back out into the world and do it again. Like any good scientist, you've got to play with it more than once. The E is where the rubber meets the road. Expand is where you take that learning and apply it to a different area of your life, work, personal, you name it. But apply it to another area because as you apply it, you deeply embed that learning. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's just brought to mind so many times that I myself, and I think a lot of people listening will feel this way too. You know, you start the year off and you say, oh, I'm, I got a new habit. I'm going to bring this new habit into being and I'm just going to do it like that. And just like that. Flip a switch and do it. And it might work for two days. <laughs> <laughs> if you're Let's lucky, see, you might get to one week. <laughs> what is the gym memberships? They sell like mad in January. And by February, the gyms are empty. Mm. It's like once you give yourself the grace to get into the routine, get into a pattern, much better chance of it sticking. There's a process to new habit formation. And the six tips is the process. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, David. Now, there's one thing that I saw in your bio that I said, I always like to ask people things that I'm like, hmm, I've never heard that before. Now, you said that growing your people as an entrepreneur, as a leader, you said growing your people is the wrong approach. Oh, no, quite the opposite. Except, oh, really? well, here's the okay. spin on it. Most, okay. I, I, I did this too, and I see so many leaders who try to grow their people instead of growing themselves. And if you want to grow your company, grow your people. If you want to grow your people, grow yourself. It always starts here. Always, always. Now, the fix my people leaders are impossible to coach, right? So the culture of your team is based on how you're showing and expressing your values and how you're operating and being in the world. It gets mimicked. You're setting the culture for your team. And if you don't like your team's culture, don't look at fixing them. Fix the entire team. That includes you. 
The hardest people to coach are the fix my people leaders. Fix me and that will fix my people because I'm setting the example of what should be done. Absolutely. Uh, the, the best question you can ask as an entrepreneur as you start bringing on team is what part of the, actually forget it, even before you start bringing on team, the best question a leader and an entrepreneur can ask is what part of the problem am I? That just hit me in the face. <laughs> How do you process that though? Because it's so hard sometimes. And I suppose it's part of self-awareness, but how do you get to the point of being that self-aware that you understand where in the problem you are or how you have created a problem? The hardest part of that is getting out of judgment, you know, getting out of the little gremlins whispering in your ear, you're terrible, you're a failure, you can't do this, you're off God's path. All the different things those internal voices say that are destructive and diminishing. It's getting out of the judgment and into this guy named Sherzad Shamin, who does work around positive intelligence. And he talks about standing in blameless discernment. It's not voting on whether it's good or bad. It's merely looking at it objectively without blame and saying, this is where I'm having an impact and where I'm not. This is where I'm helping. This is where I'm hurting. This is where it's working. This is where it's not. And all of it is matter of fact, very few people default to blameless discernment. It's just assessing it without judgment because then you can operate based on the facts instead of all the nasty judgments you pile on it. Mm. Oh, this is phenomenal. Now, David, I'm going to move us along a little bit. Zig Ziglar says, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, he says neither does bathing and that's why you need to do it every day. Something like that. Yes. And I love that because you do see that one minute you're motivated, more than motivated, and the next minute you're just, you can hardly get out of bed. That's, right. that's a chore in itself. And you say that there are two flavors of motivation. Tell us a little bit about that, David. Nice segue, because this sort of ties into the voting on things and judging. It's like there's a flavor of motivation that we all love and crave and value on its surface. That's inspiration. We all want to be inspired. And the feeling is phenomenal, and it's a lot of energy, and it's a great drive. I want to create that, or I want to change that, or this. I want more of that. And it's always a running towards, a pull, if you will. And I don't know anybody who doesn't agree that that's a great feeling and it's the ideal. The other flavor is irritation. And we tend to discount irritation. I'll give you a great example of what I mean. Our friend Kathy, who was morbidly obese, and I, I want to take it down to something simple and accessible rather than a huge business example. This is one that most people can understand. Kathy was morbidly obese. And although she and her husband didn't have kids, they had a niece and a nephew they adored these children. And she's driving in California and she looks in her rear view and sees the two kids behind her and says, oh my God, if something went crazy, if we had an accident here, I don't feel like I could get them out of the car to safety. Now, it didn't matter what diet or exercise regime she had tried before, nothing stuck, nothing maintained the motivation, nothing kept her moving. The irritation of, I can't take care of those kids the way I want to, that irritation got the first 80 pounds. That got mm. her motivated. Now, then she started feeling different and looking different. And she was like hell bent on continuing that. And then it became about inspiration. But when we discount irritation as a motivator, we surrender and give away the energy that's available. Most things in our world are a blend of the two. Don't discount it. Don't judge it. Don't dismiss it. Use it. Mm, oh, absolutely true. And because a lot of times we go for the hype. And, you know, you got to keep feeding that hype all the time to, to keep it going. 
So well, and then we can fall prey to it. Think mm-hmm. about all these, you know, the, the catnip marketing on the internet is six secrets to six figures, seven secrets to seven figures, all this stuff that most of those plans do nothing but separate people from their money and delay their dreams because they're not a way for you to shift your thinking. It's a way to motivate you through scarcity that the only way to do it is to use somebody else's system or structure to do it like they did, where they did it, when they did it, which is why it worked then, and not to map over that learning to who you are and who your market is and what the shift is you want to create and what the plan is for you. So it's important that we always look at it through the lens of what am I here for? Who do I want to be? What motivates me? Then you get to map that learning onto you instead of just doing it like somebody else did. David, you talked about being driven by scarcity, which is what the media does a lot. And a lot of us react really quickly to that scarcity. Now, how do you create the opposite? How do you create the abundance uh, in your mind when everything that seems to hype motivate is in scarcity? I try not to go to either pole because I don't think scarcity is any more real than abundance. I think they're both myths and constructs that don't serve. Mm -hmm. There's sufficiency, that there is more than enough for everyone. Scarcity and abundance both oddly tie to the idea that it's a zero-sum game, that for me to have more, somebody else has to have less. Mm. And it's, it's simply not true. <laughs> yeah, Lynn Twist, who wrote The Soul of Money, I don't know, 25 years ago, I heard her speaking in 2011, and she spoke beautifully about the idea of sufficiency and ensuring that part of our way of healing the planet, part of tikkun olam, is about moving towards sufficiency, understanding that there are more than enough resources on this planet for everyone. And there's, as a coach, what we know is there's more than enough clients out there who want coaching, who are ready to engage in coaching, then there are coaches to provide it. To compete with each other is ridiculous waste of energy. It's more coopetition. This is a cooperative space. And whether you're a consultant, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in a a noisy marketplace or not, there's more than enough. And when you carve your niche clearly, and you and the people you wish to serve are clear that you can serve them, there's more than enough business. It's a different mindset for approaching. An absolutely different mindset for approaching because, you know, a lot of times it's a lot of this kind of somebody else has got your bag. So if you're sleeping, somebody else is going to get your bag, you know, that kind of um, rhetoric. But also I for a long time really believed in, oh, I got to move away scarcity mindset into abundance. And it's only now that you're talking that I'm thinking like, oh, but you know, anytime you see things in extremes, you know, either that or this, you've always got a question, but we usually don't. Being sold to extremes, taking the time to be like, okay, well, something must not be right there. Let me really question that before I buy into it. Thank you. Because my light bulbs are going off. I think the audience light bulb is going to be going off too. Play with it from more of the faith perspective then. The the idea that do not needlessly waste the resources God has provided. Abundance is, if nothing else, a waste of the resources provided. Because if somebody has abundance, it's way more than they could possibly ever need or use. So if we're prohibited from needlessly wasting, then abundance, it isn't real and it doesn't serve. David, I'm going to jump a little bit. Okay. Now, you have a lot of hobbies. And as many (laughs) entrepreneurs, I was reading this and I was like, either what time does this man sleep or what time does he get to do all of these things? You run your business, you're a distance cycler, you're a wine collector, you're a gold medal rower. 
What time do you get that done? How do you create that work-life balance? By not using that phrase, mm. I'll tell you why. Whose crazy idea was it to put the word work first? Right? Why is it work-life balance? We are not put on this planet to work. That's not how it is. We're here to live. Work is part of what we do. So is faith. So is community. So is family. All of these aspects of our life, and we pick the word work in the in this phrase where we're supposed to achieve balance, and we put it first. No, no, no. The, the idea is to create a life rhythm, a rhythm across all aspects of your life that work for you now. And finding that rhythm is different than balance. To, to balance two things, you have to separate it, right? Good luck separating work and life anyway. And that was before the pandemic, before we're locked down. To find, nobody finds time, to carve out time and space and energy and attention for the things that are important to me, I have to find a rhythm that works. Mm. You know, I'm not going to go out and ride 100 miles every day. My wife would have shot me. They call that concept the spandex widow. The spouse is outside wearing spandex on a bike and the other partner's at home going, what the fuck? So no, mm. it's finding a rhythm that works for your family, your business, your life, your values, your goals. So if we get out of this idea of balance, it's a lot easier. It's also me like, let me know if I'm getting it correctly. You know, a lot of times, like you said, we, we even copy and paste things like work and life balance. Like, what should it look like? Oh, it must mean I must be at the gym at 530 because that's what people do. Right. Does that work for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I know entrepreneurs who are listening because I also, when you said we shouldn't start with work, I was like, ah! Early entrepreneurs, we're like, we're all about the work. One of my favorite things to do to, that really irritates entrepreneurs is ask yeah. them how much they need to make. And most of the time, I get deer in headlights or crickets. I'm like, no, 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 no. How much do you need to make? How, worse, how much do you want to make? And the answer to that is more. And by the way, if they come up with a number, say, where'd that number come from? And they can't answer it. It's very, very few who have done the work to understand what they need to make. Therefore, what the money is for. And when you know what the money is for, it means you've got a clear sense of what the life is you want to create. So I'll do this really quick. Here's the game. Start with, what do you want your life to look like? Pick a time, five years out. And I don't mean it's Wednesday, I get up at five, I do, no, no, no. I mean, what do you want it to look like? Where and with whom and what are you doing with the emotional field? What's described, paint a vivid picture of your life like you're writing a screenplay of what your life looks like. Then the part that freaks out most people is sit down and look at what does it cost to live that life? Then you have an idea. Okay, well, if it's going to cost X to live that life, what kind of income does my business, do my holdings have to throw off so I could have this much money to live that life? Great. And if my company has to, or my holdings have to throw out that kind of money, <laughs> what do my business or businesses need to look like? What do my holdings need to look like? Right. And then from there, you can back it up to what do my product and service mix have to look like? And what does a team have to look like to support that? And, and so on. And you're working backwards from what you want it to look like there to what it is right now, then you see a roadmap of what to build and how to build it. But if you try to plan moving forward, which is what entrepreneurs do, ooh, what's my next mm. step? That's what we do, right? Yes. No, mm. plan from a point down the road, looking backwards to where you are now. And that 
that's how you build a roadmap that will get you somewhere. And that's how you answer how much do I need to make? Otherwise, you're just yeah. throwing numbers. That's really great. When you picture your life, you begin to see, okay, part of that screenplay, my children and the relationships I want to have. Then you, when you go backwards, you realize that what I'm doing, is it going to get me to that screenplay? It's more exactly. than just the business. If I want to have a great relationship, is what I'm doing right now going to help me to get to... And now I begin to see that you're absolutely right. I'm sorry, the entrepreneur in me was like, work, 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 work. But I needed to say that because I know a lot of people listening and they're, they're thinking it too. And that life does come first before work. Wow. No, no, no. Listen, don't think that I got it right all the way along the way. I launched a company with a six-month-old baby at home and my wife raised our children for the first 10 years alone. And by sheer act of will, she was patient enough to stay. And because she always knew the intention was there, it just took me 10 years to get my head in a place where it would work. And to start being part of all the different aspects of my life and not just work. It is the natural tendency, the entrepreneurial seizure is to leap in headlong because if I don't do it, nobody else will. I'm the only one. This is the only way. That's not true. That's the surest way to end up in the hospital or a box. Wise words. Wise words. Now, David, I saw that you do work with impact billionaires. What's that about? They're the most amazing group of humans I've ever met. It's not like Elon Musk, who has billions of dollars, all of a sudden deciding he wants to have an impact, right? That's not it. Impact billionaires, they're not motivated by the number of dollars they amass. That's not it. It's the number of lives they touch. And the goal is to impact a billion lives. Now, these are fascinating humans because they always seem to be able to source the money they need. They don't have resources. They are resourceful. And whether they're funding they're getting or they're able to raise the money or earn the money themselves, there's always sufficient funding to do what it is that's important to them. And they're working with ideas or concepts that are changing the lives of a massive amount of population. So I'll give you an example. Robin Jorgensen runs a group called Women Igniting Change in the Cora Foundation. And the work that we've done over the years, what Robin has created is an NGO that is designed to unearth or unleash the contribution of women. And the idea is, for instance, what they're doing in Rwanda is changing the way women are seen included in and relied upon as the economic engine of the country, working with the gender minister and working with other NGOs. And this is the model that they're doing, opening centers for women across Rwanda. And then from there, moving across the other 53 countries in Africa. This is a way to change the lived experience of millions and millions of people across Africa. Because when you change the lives of women with education and the ability to generate income and wealth for the family, it changes the entire nation. So that's what I mean by impact billionaires. I love how you hook us in with the billions and it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal to impact a billion lives. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. That's a shift. Mm, yeah, that's a shift. Now, David, I always ask people who come on to tell us about one book that they recommend to an early entrepreneur. Either you read it as an early entrepreneur or something that you feel like, no, this is what can give you a shift in some way. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give two. Because do. one, one is for the doing side and one is for the being side. So I'll give the, the doing side first because that's what everybody loves. <laughs> is the e-myth revisited. Michael Gerber is a brilliant writer. He's built the e-myth empire. E is for entrepreneurs, the entrepreneur myth. And 
the original book was written in the 70s. Revisited was written much more recently. And then E-Myth Mastery is after. Start with E-Myth Revisited. It teaches the entrepreneur to treat their business like it was a franchise, even if they never have any intention of franchising ever. Because it's teaching you to think in a way that allows you to build systems and structure and processes that allow you to be human running a business instead of a business running you. So it is, mm. it's required reading for any entrepreneur because we all have ways that we can do it better. Absolutely. And the other one is for the being side, because we spend so much time being human doings. We've got to put some attention into being a human being. And there's a book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, R-U-I-Z. It's an incredible book that allows you to change the way you engage with everyone around you. Four simple agreements, four different rules for how to live, and a beautiful setup that helps you understand why we, through our education and acculturation, end up not living that way. And it's an invitation to come back. What I love most is it's a tiny book, not but about 120 pages. Buy it, read it, read it again. I think it'll cost mm -hmm. you six bucks uh, and it will change the way you engage. Uh, thank you for that recommendation. David, I can't let you go without asking you to share about your best-selling book. Okay. Mindset Mondays with DTK, 52 ways to share your thinking and transform your life. Because when we read it, we're going to have your voice playing in <laughs> our minds. <laughs> well, to be fair, I didn't set out to write a book. I didn't. Three years ago, I started a live broadcast every Monday morning, 10 o'clock Eastern. I do a 10 to 12 minute live broadcast, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. And it's a conversation about mindset, leadership, and learning because they're inextricably linked. And I wanted to get better at speaking to any topic through the lens of my point of view. So I started this for me, for my learning. And people started showing up and people started coming back week after week. And I'm three years into this and there's a community of folk who we've opened up for people who participate in the live broadcast to communicate and share successes and challenges all throughout the week. So what I did was my learning and my theories and my understanding of mindset and leadership mixed with some neuroscience that you don't have to understand, it's laced into the book, and the learning from that community of participants in Mindset Mondays. And I created a book. Best way to use it is to read one chapter each week, follow the rewire prompts, and use it out in your world. And you'll start to see within several weeks, your world will transform. Because when you change your lens, the lens through which you see the world, you change the way you experience it. So truly, change your lens, change your life. I wrote the book I needed to read 30 years ago, and mm. 25 years ago, and 20 years ago, I wrote the book I needed to have read. Now, our last question, David, before we let you go, we always ask, what has faith meant to you along your journey? A frame for the way, way I choose to be in the world. Basic principles of Judaism hold that we treat people well always and in all ways, and that we leave the world better than we found it, period. That's our responsibility. That's our job here. And there are lots of different rules broken out about how to do all that. But those for me are the two basic formative concepts. It's the foundation of all three of the Abrahamic religions. It is the core of Judeo-Christian belief structure that we treat people well always and in all ways, and we leave this place better than we found it. When I'm being conscious, that shapes the way I engage with the world. When I find myself off track, it's because I've gone unconscious and out of connection with what's important. Mm -hmm. So if I had to put a frame around it, that's how faith has shaped my professional life. Thank you. 
It's been an amazing conversation, David. Thank you for being with us and taking the time. Please go to Mindset Mondays with DTK.com and make sure you download the Rewire framework and apply it to your life and begin to see things through a different lens. Thank you, David. If you got any value out of today's episode, please do leave a review and let us know what kind of guests you'd like us to bring on and what exactly it is that you'd like to know. Also connect with us on Instagram at Reinventing Perspectives. Visit our website, www.reinventingperspectives.com where you can grab a free preview of our latest book, The Christian Entrepreneur's Toolkit. Thank you so much for listening in. We absolutely value your time and we value your input. Have a great day.